Today's scripture is Acts eleven nineteen through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Austin. So, uh, like I said, we've been in Acts. We're going to continue to go through Acts uh, through the summer. Um, I, I want to, before we get into the, the back half of 11, really remind you um, of what we, we together as a church talked about last week in um, Acts 10 and the beginning of 11, that the idea that God is on the move in such a way that he's going to a people group and people that are not like us and beyond us needs to continue to stay on the forefront of our mind, not just because of Acts, um, but just recognize you have proclivities and um, you have certain ways of viewing certain people that maybe through your upbringing or how you are, that your immediate inclination is not to go towards them. And, and the gospel would really break down those walls. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to remember that, that there's people all around you um, that the kingdom of God wants to continue to grow towards. And, and that really is our call as, as Christians, right? So um, we read a little bit of that in Ephesians. So um, our passage today is, is uh, starting in verse 19. And before I get there, um, I want to kind of set us up with just some brief ideas so you can kind of understand what we're going into. If I was to ask you what your mom was like when you were a kid, um, most likely, if I was to go, hey, Adrian, what was your mom like, uh, you know, as a child? You wouldn't go, well, she was 5'3", 125 pounds, blue eyes, because that's not really what I'm looking for, right? I'm trying to get at, you know, what type of person your mom was. So you would go, oh, she was, she was gentle, and she was kind, and she gave and gave and gave. And you might even go, as a matter of fact, this one time, and you might tell a story, right? And the best way to describe your mom or any person is not to just to give these a matter-of-fact facts, right? This brass tacks, this is how it is. But to put it in not just narrative, but a very um, alive narrative, how it's affected you narrative. And that's important because that's our passage today. What Luke has been doing is telling the story of the church, the way that Jesus has left the earth and given his people this mission. He could have just said, well, then it grew at this point. Then there's this guy, Saul. And now he's a Christian, right? And and instead of just, he's telling us in narrative. And what we're uh, approaching today at the back half of 11 is this narrative. We're seeing the church grow, grow, grow. And we're going to see how it happens and what happens. And I'm actually excited for for some parts of this passage because I think it's really going to challenge 
some just core ways that some of you grew up in church and view that um, a little differently. So let's do this. Let's start in verse 19. Um, if you're new, I'm just going to read this. We're going to do a big Bible study together. I'm going to give you kind of all the background of what's going on in our passage. And uh, narrative, I think the best way to teach narrative is kind of do that and then step back and ask the question, well, why do we have this? Why did Luke choose to put this part in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles? And, uh, and, and that's what we'll do. So first, let's kind of break down the text and see what we got. Now, those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Let's stop right there because you're probably already lost if you haven't been coming for a while. Um, a while back earlier in the book of Acts, there's this guy, Stephen, preaching the word, gave an awesome sermon. He ends up being stoned to death and the church is afraid, really, really afraid. And so they begin to scatter. But the guy who is kind of the brunt of the, the persecution, the guy who, who is the head of killing Stephen, he ends up getting saved, and so there's this peace within the church. So though the church was scattered, they've kind of resolved where they are because of the persecution of Stephen. So they've traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So remember, this, the word of God has only been going to Jews. But now, right, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, Greek speakers, or, you know, outside Romans, to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so let's stop real quick, and let's give a breakdown. Um, as we move forward in the book of Acts, I'm going to give you a lot of maps. You know, if you've ever gone to church, uh, maps are super easy to forget, and so I, I'm excited for you to forget these things. But it's... it's um, it's good to see a little bit uh, as to the ge- geography of this. And you've probably seen a map somehow of, of uh, Jerusalem and Israel and, and maybe ancient Israel, modern Israel, how all of that works. But this little Bermuda Triangle here is um, for us to see kind of how we get to the place that we're going, which is Antioch, right? So uh, they're here in Jerusalem and Samaria. And, and really where the, the gospel's been growing is in this, Cyprus. But there's these people where the gospel's obviously gone down from Judea through Egypt to Cyrene or maybe across Cyprus to Cyrene. But now these... Uh, uh, men who we don't know who they are um, have headed towards Antioch. They've gone towards Antioch and they're preaching the gospel to people who aren't Jews. Okay. So that's kind of just a map of visual for those of you who, who like that. But the city Antioch, and you can leave this map up for a couple minutes. The city Antioch is really important, um, not just historically, but even some of why I think Luke puts this in the story. Okay. A couple facts. And again, I, I know facts aren't always easy, but uh, facts uh, about this. First of all, it's the first Gentile city that we're going to e- experience where the gospel goes to. Um, Josephus, this, he's a, a, a historian, he calls it the third city of the Roman Empire, meaning that only Rome and Alexandria were bigger than Antioch. Antioch is a very large city, um, between 500 and 800,000 people. And back then, that's a metropolis, okay? So a, a big part uh, of, of, um, of the story. It is an important commercial and economic center, meaning here it is. So I want you to think of all trade coming from the east. It's dropping down from the east, maybe even through Europe, coming through Antioch first. So people are really coming, and it becomes an epicenter for this melting pot of all different cultures. Uh, people who are historically found to have been there uh, were uh, Romans, Greeks, Semitics, Ar- um, Arabics, and even Persian influences are all found within Antioch. And this is, um, this is probably a big part of what Antioch does. When all of these cultures collide, what happens is, what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. Meaning, um, there's this idea of loose living in Antioch. And it's Vegas or whatever you want to do, Sin City on steroids. There's a guy named uh, Longnecker who des- describes it like this is a quote from him. The city was not only known for its sophistication and culture, but also for its vices. The beautiful pleasure... 
park of Daphne. Um, I put the prostitute goddess up there. I don't know if that's up there. She's not necessarily the prostitute goddess, um, if you know your Greek history, but she is... She ends up in Antioch being known as this prostitute goddess. Was a center for moral depravity of every kind. And the expression, hear this, this is the expression of Antioch. Live loosely became a proverb for depraved living. Okay? So what's going on in Antioch is all these cultures are melting, a big thing. Now, the idea of it is the gospel blows up, but the mantra in Antioch is live loosely. I mean, hedonism to its core. Do what you want to do, man. Do what you want to do. And Luke points us towards this city, and the gospel explodes. It explodes. Now, because of this, what's happening back in Jerusalem, you can throw that map back up. The people in Jerusalem are going, wait a minute, the gospel's growing where? Where? Okay, this is what happens. So the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Jerusalem goes, wait a minute, in Antioch? Okay, let's go find out what's really going on there. So when he came, he being Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So what we have is the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas, goes to find out what's going on on in Antioch. He arrives in Antioch and Barnabas goes, this is awesome. The grace of God, he can see it. He's, this is, this is amazing. So he knows what he immediately wants to do. We were left in, uh, on verse 30 of chapter nine in Acts. Uh, uh, Paul is left in Tarsus. Barnabas goes, I need to, to get somebody to help here. So Barnabas goes and Barnabas and Paul, they bring, they, uh, sorry, they, they continue to compound what the gospel is already doing within Antioch as Barnabas brings Paul there. Okay. And so the church is blown up. This is God really doing some awesome, awesome things. As a matter of fact, it's the first time that they are called Christians. Okay. And, um, historically this probably was actually more seen of a, as a demeaning term. We kind of maybe throw it out there as like, we're Christians, but this is more like a, you're a Herodianite. You're a, you're a Christian. You're, a, you're, you're that type. You're a Christian. You're a Christ follower. And it wasn't seen as this kind of beat your chest idea. So this is the first time they are called Christians. Um, and so you'll, you'll see Luke has used different ways to describe it, but from this point forward, he'll use that in the mix. Let's go to verse 27. We're almost through the passage, and then uh, we got a lot of work to do. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So now, prophets behind Barnabas came to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit, so this is God doing something, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Luke kind of puts that in to go, historically, look it up yourself which I did, and it's true. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it uh, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now this guy Agabus in Antioch comes from Jerusalem. He prophesies that there's going to be this famine. There ends up being this famine. So there's a famine all throughout Israel, right? And here's this famine. He says across the world, the known world at this time to them. And as this famine's out there, the church in Antioch, who's known for loose living, this huge population who's not known as Christians, but the first time they are called Christians there, says, hey, we're Gentiles. We're not Jews. But you know what? Let's send an offering to Jerusalem to help them out, okay? And that's kind of what we see. And then Luke kind of ends his narrative there and we'll pick it up next week. So there's our, our, our text. We, we did our best to kind of break it down. Now here's the question. Why is this in the Bible? 
Why is he, if I was to ask you what your mom is like, why is Luke telling us a story? Why couldn't he just go, so at one point the church grew in Antioch. Next. At one point Agabus prophesied and they sent an offering. Next. No, he's doing it in narrative, giving us great details about what happens with Barnabas finding Paul in Tarsus, about these men that they don't know. And and so here's the question I want to ask. As we're reading the story of the church growing, I think the wrestle for us is recognizing theologically that Jesus' kingdom is here on earth. Not fully. It's already here, but it's, it's not all the way here. It's this very already not yet tension that we live in. But us as Christians don't know how to recognize it. We don't know how to recognize it. We don't even know fully what we're doing sometimes if it's for the kingdom of God or not. So here's what I want to do. I think there are four things in this passage that point us towards the beauty of the kingdom of God expanding that we can recognize. Now, if you're a note taker, you probably know I am not linear at all. Um, if you've been coming long enough, but I'm going to be here. So if you love notes and you're like, let me jot it down. I want to give you four things that I think this passage points us towards that I think um, really blows up the beauty of why the kingdom of God grows. So hear me. I think this is not limited, but I think a big part of how the kingdom of Jesus is active in your life, how he's active in the church and how he continues to grow his kingdom. Four things. Okay. Here's the first one. Um, tension or persecution, more appropriately, problems. Right away, what we find is that the church has gone out because of persecution. Uh, Randy Alcorn gives an example like this. He says, uh, what persecution does is like a man stomping on a glass bottle. So if I stamp, stomp on the glass, it spreads. And then I try to stomp out more of that glass and it spreads more, right? Trying to stomp out glass is impossible because it will only continue to spread. You're not going to be able to stomp it out so it eventually just goes away. It's just going to continue to spread. And this is what persecution is doing. Persecution is making the church move. Now, we have to begin to wrestle. Why is Luke giving us this narrative? Because here's the truth, y'all. We as Christians have to think differently about pain. We have to think differently about sorrow. We have to think differently about hurts. We have to think differently even about persecution than the world does. And I know that's not easy to hear, but as a Christian, we're even told in Romans 5 that God somehow in his sovereignty hands you plates full of issues so that you can grow in character. And in this moment, we may look at this situation and go, God, why are you allowing my brother and sister to be killed for your cause? But suddenly, with hindsight, we see in Acts that he's doing something. And because of that, because of what we see, or because of what they saw and they didn't get to see, the gospel goes to Antioch. Now, I don't know the depths of the pain, but here's what I do know. Um, when Candace and I were doing um, Lamaze classes for our first child, which afterwards we were like, this is a waste of time. Let's just get this thing done. That's what I was. Candace was like, easy for you to say. Okay. Um, but, but I remember uh, the, the nurse who was leading our Lamaze class, uh, we started talking about epidurals and all that stuff. And I'm going to faint if I talk about it, so I'm not going to talk about it. But she goes, she goes, you, you know, us Americans, we love our medicine. That's what she said. I remember that. And that's like echoed in my mind because the reality is, man, we have the ability in the Western world to avoid pain at all costs. And we're going to. And I'm not even saying that's necessarily wrong, right? I'm not saying it's wrong every time to, to not want to be in pain. There is a, um, a good part of recognizing that it's not the way it's supposed to be and being mad at the way that it is right now. But at the same time, us as Christians, here's a non-Christian and a Christian, A non-Christian is just angry. He doesn't like what's going on. And though that may be true for the Christian, at the back of our mind, there's this idea of living intention as a problem. We should step back and go, God, what are you doing? 
What are you doing? And I think if we can recognize that, that I think there's a beauty to that, that I think your neighbor, I think your friend, your family member, hear this, will see that in you, the way that you count it all joy, according to James 1.3, as you see that you count it all joy, these problems and issues and trials and tribulations, whatever comes your way, the kingdom of God grows. It, go, it grows through problems. It does. So um, that, that's the first one. I want to read something to you to, to kind of cap that off. Um, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, just listen to how I think this is such a, a, a big part of this. This is Paul who writes this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. Just stop. Just stop. And just listen to that. Like, like meditate on that for a second. Here's Paul. He's going, I was going through so much. I just wanted to die. I, I was, I was hurting so much. It, I don't know where food was going to come. I mean, and you read the accounts in second Corinthians and like, he's sleeping in cold. He's, he's being flogged. I just wanted to die. I mean, we get into the, the dialogue within his own head at one point. He's going, man, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I mean, have you felt that? Have you felt the way of like, I, I just want to die. And it's at that point that Paul pins these words, despairing of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but, and that but is a huge part of the Christian life, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That maybe for a moment, the kingdom of God grows through this persecution spreading out. Maybe in your own life, trials, whatever it is, whatever's coming, the loss of a family member, the hurt, the the feeling that your kids aren't growing up the way that you want to, the job situation, the moving situation, whatever it is you're struggling with, maybe for a moment as you're despairing, as it's difficult, hear me, this is all so that that God would not make you rely on yourself, but rely on him. Maybe, maybe. So that's number one. I think there's a beauty in this this passage that we see that the kingdom of God is growing through persecution and problems. Number two, uh, witnessing or or verbal proclamation. So I think in the Reformed community, um, we, uh, so let's let's backtrack. There's a huge wave, uh, church historically, of um, how evangelism is going out, meaning there's like these tent revivals, early 1900s. What you find is guys like Billy Sunday are uh, setting up these tents and they would have, I've I shared this with you guys. Uh, what happens is this anxious seat up front. All of you would be sitting in the anxious seat. And here's what's crazy. If you brought your friend who was a sinner and was not a Christian, you would bring them to the anxious seat and then go take your seat, right? So all the sinners are sitting up front. Hilarious, right? So so then there's this preaching going on, right? And people are being saved in the droves, right? This is why the Billy Graham crusades are going on. And even Greg Laurie still continues to, to press into this model. And I, whether it's effective or not at this point is irrelevant. But what I want you to know is what we took in the reform community as like foolish, it's not effective. We swung the pendulum all the way to the other side to not just be proclamation, but to simply be presence. Meaning now um, as Christians, well, I'm just, I'm just around them, Right? I'm going to the bar and you're hiding that in mission somehow, okay? I'm with them, but I never talk about Jesus. I never talk about him. And I mean, I just want to encourage us, let's be careful of that. Because the Bible talks a lot about you talking. And you being very vocal. As a matter of fact, these men, again, who we don't know they, uh, who they were, listen to this, who were on coming to Antioch, spoke. Now, you know that I believe at the core, as even redemption, all of life is all for Jesus and everything that we do 
matters. Changing a diaper matters. It is effective for the beauty of Christ. At the same time, all those things are coupled with a verbal proclamation. Eventually, um, and, and this is, this is uh, okay, so, right? so you guys know that, um, <laughs> that I did some street preaching once in my life. And I'm not saying like everyone just needs to get the bullhorn. What I am saying is that um, there are po- points in your life where God is going to bring you a situation that goes now. And your job in that moment is to be obedient. So this last Friday on our neighborhood, every Friday night, there's a big party because um, our next door neighbor does a huge skate session, right? And so there's this huge skate session going on. And, um, and it's, you know, very few, if any, are Christians. And uh, I've been hanging out with um, a couple of these guys a lot. They've been helping me do work in my house and we're building stuff. So I see them all the time and working. And randomly, one of the guys comes up and he goes, dude, 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 dude. Hey, what did Jesus, when he was talking to the demon, what happened? What did the demon say? He said, uh, we are, when he cast the demons into the pig, right? And I'm going, okay, let's do this right now, okay? So, so I go, we are legion. And he goes, oh my gosh, that's so crazy, dude, right? And he's starting to like, so he just had two friends die and, and, and he's like tripping out about life right there. And in that moment, right, I've got to wrestle with this like, now? Or I can go, no, I don't, I don't want to ruin this, right? There, there's a, but all I'm saying is there's a proclamation in that moment. So I start to go, yeah, dude. And I start to lay out my story. I start to lay out the goodness of the gospel. And he goes, well, I'm not ready to commit to anything. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going to tell you right now, you brought up the demon thing, bro. So like, let's talk about this. So, so, so here, here's, here's my point. Though presence is important, the kingdom of God also expands through proclamation. And we see that here through this proclamation, which means you got to do two things in proclamation. Um, and this is, this is important for Antioch. Coming on to Antioch, the idea of live loosely is everywhere, right? So um, what these men had to do was they had to acknowledge the idea that people in Antioch are searching for joy. They're looking for pleasure. They're, they're looking for the, the utmost happiness. And so you've got to acknowledge that. You're looking for joy. And I know that's true. But as much as you acknowledge the good and that what they're looking for you eventually turn it, and that's not the easiest part, right? Because what they're looking for is good, but where they're looking for it is bad. And, and this is where sin has affected their, their desires. This is where sin has affected their action. And so you got to turn that. I remember uh, when I was 18 years old, I started something called Go Ministries. And uh, Brandon Harder, who's a, a community leader here, was with me. And we went to a library, Barnes & Noble, which I don't even think they exist anymore. But Barnes & Noble off of uh, at PV Mall was there. And um, we went in and we were looking for some books. And there was a palm reading uh, thing going on there. And I'm like, here we go. Okay. And it was at the time where I was like, everybody's going to hear the gospel. So I said, excuse me, excuse me. There's a palm reading class. I go, hey, listen. I know that I'm younger than a lot of you guys, and uh, I know you're searching for stuff. And they're like, okay, I like this kid. And then I go, but it ain't found in your hand. It's not found in your hand. It's found in Jesus. And like, it was all bad, right? Security comes over, takes, escorts me and Brandon out of Barnes and Noble. Um, True story, right? But there's that tension, right? Maybe not as crazy, but there's a tension that you live in with your family and friends to go, hey, listen, I know what you're looking for, and that's a good thing, but you're looking for it in the wrong place. Like it's broken. You, what you're looking for is, 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 is good, but where you're looking for it is broken. That's not the place to find it. It's found in Jesus. And let me tell you my own story, how I know that to be true, right? So that's the second thing. First is that the gospel, the kingdom of God is growing in our story through the idea of persecution, problems, tension, and then also through verbal proclamation. The third thing, which we find at the, the back half of here, um, when the prophecy goes out from Agabus, what do we immediately see um, this Gentile church do? They respond in the third thing, giving. Okay? Now, 
immediately, probably if you're new, uh, you think this is where I'm going to like have some guys walk up the aisle and pass a, ba- pass a basket around. Um, let me just be very gently say this to you. Um, Redemption Peoria is doing really, really well um, financially, honestly. I'm not here. I'm not asking you like for more money. I think if you are a member here, yes, you should give to the church. And that is your role of being a member here. My kids need to eat. Uh, the Walsham's kids need to eat. Uh, we need to pay the bills. All that's true. But the reality is I'm not bringing this up so that you could know um, that you need to be a giver to the church. I'm bringing this up because you need to be a giver. You need to give. You know what's so crazy about this? The panhandler on I-17 in Peoria no matter how I feel about capitalism or what the government is doing in aid, that panhandler is my responsibility. Like as a Christian, the poor and the weak are my responsibility. As a church, we are to take that burden on. And what we see is the church is a giving entity. Now, I would love to break down all types of scriptures, but, um, and I had a list of these things that I was going to throw out to you, but let me just explain to you personally how I know this to be true. Because when I got saved, you guys knew I grew up poor and homeless. Um, it was the church that, that, that saved me even physically. Titus, I'm driving him to school the other day, and he goes, Daddy, isn't it weird to you? And I go, what? And he goes, it's weird that you were, were uh, homeless as a kid and poor and your parents did drugs, but now you have a family and a house. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is. This is crazy. Let me tell you the gospel, okay? So, so I just, I'm being offered opportunities all day long, right? They're like, one guy randomly in Walmart's like, hey, who's Jesus? I'm like, well, no, that didn't happen. Um, so so, so Titus, Titus says this, and it really made me reflect. So check this out, listen. I'm not kidding. This is all Christianity. Not then just giving to the church, but giving to a kid who gets saved in the church. My first four cars were all given to me by Christians. 72 bug, real deal, broke down in like three weeks. Um, 82 uh, Firebird, um, not real story. Uh, 92 Ford Escort, and then 2002. They're all twos. 2002 Sebring, which is Sebring. Candace and I, top down, we were all about it, okay? But, but um, my first four cars, I, I had transportation to get jobs because of connections from people in the church. And it's not just there. My physical needs were met, meaning I had a house, a roof over my head, and food on the table because Christians stepped up. The Youngs, the Moosefelts, the Broders, they all took me in and I lived with them. It was Christians who gave. And man, don't get it twisted. A hundred years after our passage, you know what? More than anything, Christians are known for giving. They took care of the poor, even the the non-Christian poor. How crazy is that? At the core, Christians in the kingdom of God grows, Christianity grows through giving, a giving people. So tension, problems, call it what you will, uh, trials, witnessing, and then as a giving people. And then here's the last one, and this is where we're going to spend the most of our time, and then I got to wrap this beast up. Uh, the, the last one is, uh, and I I just put unknown men, but, um, I want, I want to use the word obscurity. Uh, look back at your Bibles. Look at, at verse 20. Uh, the word of God goes to Antioch. And, and here's how this quote-unquote revival takes place. Um, some men. I mean, do you see it there? Like, look, look right there in verse 20. Some men. It's crazy because historically we don't know who they are. You and I don't know who these men are. <laughs> I guess Luke, who's writing the story, doesn't even know who these men are. This is worth acknowledging. Because the reality is the kingdom of God with its giving and its tension and its persecution and its witnessing 
does not grow on the backs of men who want their own kingdom. It does not grow when you want your own agenda, when you want your way. Um, One of my favorite movies, or at least scenes in a movie, and I had to watch it like seven times. I get goosebumps. I'm trying not to cry. Is in the movie Miracle, right? Where Kurt Russell um, is the head coach for the the 80s, I think 84 uh, hockey team, USA hockey team. And Legit, I mean, maybe best hockey movie. Close, Mighty Ducks 2 is pretty good. But, um, but, but here, there's this scene where they're losing this game. It's this expi- exhibition game. And Kurt Russell's the coach. And he can, he's kind of looking across as time's winding down. And he's looking at his players. And they're kind of not even caring about what's going on. They're talking about going on a date with the girl third row over there, right? And so he's super frustrated. So he tells the assistant coach, stop him and tell him to get on the line. So they're getting ready. The game's over. As the, as the people are exiting the stands, he goes, get on the line, right? And so he gets them on the line, and, and he starts to make them run sprints back and forth, or, or skate sprints back and forth, back and forth. And he says this line, he uses coarse language that I won't use, but he says, the name on the front is a lot more important than the name on the back. And his point in that moment, I'm like, dang, right? So they're going back and forth, and eventually this guy goes, Martin Rizzioni, and he goes, uh, uh, and he says, well, he's from Massachusetts, he goes, who do you play for, right? And up to that point, they've been playing for different colleges, different pro teams, and he goes, the United States of America, and Kurt Russell, like a boss, goes, have a good night, gentlemen, and I'm just like, Kurt, 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 okay? Um, so, so I, and, and my point in this is his goal was to get this team behind the team, and the kingdom of God, as it continues to grow, is grown on the backs of some men. Some men. And I, I don't know who these men are, but hear me. It's the prayer women that we don't know who, who they're praying for exactly in our church and how they're praying and when they're praying. But it's those women. It's the guy who's meeting with a dude for Saturday morning Bible studies and discipleship sessions, and you don't even know that's going on. Some men and women, somewhere, they're expanding the kingdom of God. It's the Dan Broders, it's the Luke Moosefelts, it's the Spores, it's the Youngs, people you don't know. But at my funeral, you may ask, well, who brought him to Christ? Who brought him to Christ? Who discipled him? You have no idea, but they're not just some men to me, are they? You have your own list. That's in, in, in an obscure way, God uses these people at their core who are not desiring things for themselves, but are willing and okay with not being known. Um, there's a quote from John Piper I want to read to you um, that I think is, speaks a little bit into this. It says this, when I was in Singapore, there was much talk about third world missions. That is missionaries going from rather than going to third world countries. Okay, so there's conversation about um, missions, not necessarily missions going to third world countries, but missionaries going out from third world countries. Okay, but one of the uh, perceptive third, yeah, perceptive third world leaders there told me over lunch one day that this uh, really wasn't all that new. He said, so, so the guy's talking to him, he goes, man, matter of fact, I know you think this is crazy, but this isn't a new idea that, that third world countries are sending out missionaries. But this is what the man says. Um, Hardly anyone knows about them because there haven't been any biographers for third world missionaries. Like when you're in a third world country and, and do, no, people are writing about like the affluent, right? Like you, you know about those guys. You know about the Jim Elliot's. But there's being people whose names you'll never know who are giants in the kingdom of God. Giants in the kingdom of God. I don't think anyone exhibits this more in our passage than Barnabas. I mean, what we're going to find in Barnabas, whose name is Joseph, but they call him Barnabas because he's a son of encouragement. 
Like he's seen as a good man in our passage. But what we'll find through the book of Acts is Barnabas goes and gets Paul. And you know what's known in the first 11 chapters in the book of Acts? Their their little duo team, it's Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. But I bet if you've ever learned about Barnabas, that's not how you learn the order of their names, is it? We know him as Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas isn't looking for his own glory. Matter of fact, God's doing something, and he goes and gets Paul to work alongside of him. Obscurity. Staying small. No one knows. No one knows how good of a mom you are. But I promise you, one day that will be fully known. And we will stand before the Father and we'll go, you did it. Now, I think C.S. Lewis paints this beautifully. There's a book called The Great Divorce. And it's this fictional book where Lewis... um, it's really hard to explain, but essentially what happens is what are called ghosts, these spirits, these people who have died, these ghosts are kind of in this middle area of, of getting ready to go to what is called the mountain, but going to essentially to heaven. But before they go there, they have these angels, these spirits, uh, guides come down and meet them and try to navigate and have conversations with these ghosts. Okay. And so, um, there's the main character who's experiencing this. He's a ghost and he's kind of experiencing all that's going on and everything there is of substance. It's real, right? The grass is so hard for a ghost that he can't even step on it. It's amazing. I mean, what Lewis is painting is, is beautiful here. And so here's this ghost who's kind of narrating this whole story. He looks down the road and he begins to see this, this person who was on earth who has now, who's, who's died, and, and they're coming towards uh, uh, him and his spirit guide, if you will. So give me grace. Obviously, it's not all theologically accurate. He's, he's painting this, this story. But this is what it says in the story. It says this. Some kind of procession was approaching us, and the light came from the persons who composed it. First came bright spirits who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling. Then on the left and the right and on each side of the street came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. Stop. So what we see, and I know it's on the screen because I want you to enter into the narrative. He hears this procession coming and there's this procession coming and there's this music. There's these spirits laying down flowers. There's this great light that he can't see exactly where it's coming from, but there's these boys and girls. And what's beginning to happen is Lewis is painting a picture of someone who took care of these boys and girls, who, who brought them in. He goes on to say he, uh, she even took care of the boy who brought the milk to the back door. That, that, that this woman, she cared about the poor and lost. She cared about the marginalized. And she, so here she's approaching, but we don't know it's a her yet. We just see this light with this musicians and, and, and all that going on. So let's keep going. Boys on one hand, girls on the other hand. If I could remember their singing, this is the boys and girls singing. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady, in whose honor all this was being done. Only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Don't get lost and on the new earth that only God gets glory. Just enter in what Lewis is trying to tell us here. He eventually sees this woman who's so beautiful, who everyone is celebrating. Why are they celebrating or what's going on? And so he asks, who is this? And this is what his spirit says to him. It's someone you have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith and she lived in Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a a very particular important person. I, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two different, quite, are quite two different things. So he goes, you see her? You see, 
what, what you think is important on earth is not. And so here's this woman being celebrated. And Lewis is trying to paint this idea that the rewards and, and the glory that on the new earth and in heaven are far greater than we can ever get here. Hear me when I say this. This is our Vicki Beemans. This is our Diana Macklins. This is our Lisa Lopez's. This is the women who are constantly praying for you and they don't even know your name. They're praying for our church. They care deeply. They care for, for, for the boys and girls who don't have moms. They're bringing them in. They care, they care, they care, and you don't even know them. This is them. Obscurity is the name of the game. When we seek our own kingdom, we're missing the kingdom. So, reminder, those four things. One, It grows when we have problems. The kingdom of God is moving. When we witness, the kingdom of God is moving. When we're giving, when we're givers, the kingdom of God is moving. And when we are obscure and care about the fame of Jesus and not our own, the kingdom of God is moving. And here's here's how all this is summed up. When Barnabas comes to Antioch, do you know what he sees tangibly? do Do you remember what he sees? Look at our passage. Barnabas comes on to Antioch upon coming to Antioch, verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God. He saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? Like it does, like persecution, you, you see what it did, and that's the grace of God? Uh, wait, wait, wait. When, when they're giving, it's the grace of God. When they're, when they're witnessing, this is the grace of God. When they don't care about their own, this is the grace of, it doesn't feel like the grace of God when I'm trying to tell my friend about Jesus and he rejects me. It's not feel like the grace of God when my mom passed away. It doesn't feel like the grace of God. But Barnabas comes upon Antioch and he tangibly sees, this is the grace of God. This is the grace of God. And because the movement looks like the mover, it looks like Jesus. And this is so this is, this is what I love about Christianity, different than any other religion. What I just put in front of you is not anything that the one we follow hasn't already done. This is Jesus going before us. This is his kingdom that we're living into. I might have shared this, but before I pray, let me give it to you like this. Yep, 1008, Josh is going to be angry. Um, um, I, in, in 2008, I remember watching the Olympics and, um, they do all the church, you know, all the, the countries are going down and, and, uh, they always leave the home country, the host country for last. And, and, uh, so it was in China at that time. And here comes Yao Ming and Yao Ming's, you know, 10 feet tall and he's bending down and he's holding this little Asian boy's hand, right? And then Bob Costas is kind of narrating this whole thing. And when they get to China, the last country, they explain why this boy is standing next to Yao Ming, why he's going with Yao Ming. And what they come to find out is if you remember back in 2006, there was a really big earthquake in China. And um, uh, this boy who was, uh, at the time, he was a hall monitor at his school, and he's walking up and down the halls. And as he's walking up and down the halls, the earthquake happens, okay? And he's able to get out because he's in the hallway, but he recognizes no one else is coming out, at least no one in his class that he was supposed to be in at the time that he was monitoring. monitoring. So he goes in, and he saves 21 students, he knows the path, and he goes in, and he finds the path to his class, and he leads them out like four Gump, one by one. 21 students. Later, when asked in, in this interview, and you've got to watch the interview if you want to Google it, when, when asked why did he do this, he said, I'm a hall monitor. It's my responsibility. <laughs> Ain't nobody on any job description ever wrote, hall monitor, save people's lives. But no, this was his responsibility. As a hall monitor, he took it upon himself. No one asked him to do it, but this is what he knew to do. And I'm I'm putting it in front of you. As Christians, this is what we've been called to do. I'm a Christian. 
That's what I do. I give. I thrive when there's trials, though it hurts. Unbelievable. I, I witness, and I'm not about my own name. May this be true of us. May this be true of our church. Let me pray that it is so. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We love you. We praise you. We, we uh, recognize that this passage seems very ordinary at first to us. Um, but we also acknowledge the beauty in that um, you're showing us in story, in narrative form, your kingdom growing, your church growing. And so um, we pray the things that we do see in this story, though it's not limited to these things, um, that when trials and pain do come, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the breath to breathe when we feel like we can't. Um, you would help us through those things and you would remind us of the joy that we have in you and the hope that we have in you. I pray, Jesus, that when we're with our friends and family, that we would not be scared, timid, cowardly about proclaiming your goodness and the joy they're ultimately looking for. I pray that as a church, that we would be givers, not just givers to us as a body, but we would be givers outside. We would, we would help the poor. We would, we would give to families in need. We would, we would hear the, the, the cries of our neighbors if they're in need for food or, or rents or whatever it is in our community. All this would be true, that we as Christians in a body, Redemption Peoria, we would be known as givers. And then lastly, not only would we not rely on ourselves, we would not make it about ourselves. Holy Spirit, help us. We, we want to. We want credit. Help us. Help us. Let us be those some men. The men and women who will not be known, the missionaries that are sent out, that on this earth are not celebrated. But your name is made big because of us. May that be true. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. Help us. Help us. We, we desperately, desperately need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.